Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. I am joined today with Tasneem Al-Michael. We talk about electoral politics, political organizing, activism, immigration, and much more. Join us. Taz is a third-year student at the University of Oklahoma and currently serves as the president of the College Democrats of Oklahoma. After the recension of the DACA program on September 5, 2017, Taz stumbled into politics following a speech on campus about being undocumented. Starting an advocacy and organizing in D.C. for immigration reform, he returned home to work as a field organizer for Congresswoman Kendra Horn, the first Democratic woman elected to Congress from Oklahoma. Shortly after, Taz's campaign managed three successful municipal elections for 2019. He also serves as the National College Caucus Chair under Young Democrats of America and is a co-owner of a new campaign firm, AW Advocates. He now serves as a campaign manager for Wesley Forbes for Congress, the youngest candidate in America to run for the U.S. House of Representatives. So welcome, Taz, to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? Doing well. So the first question that I really want to get into um, this episode is sort of how would you describe uh, your own political ideology? Man, that's that's so complicated because, Mm -hmm. you know, you think that people fall under a particular category of like left or right, but really we're as individuals, we're all over the place. If I did have to describe myself as to where I am right now, mm. I definitely fall more under the aspects of democratic socialism. You know, actually this weekend I'm heading up to Chicago for the Young Democratic Socialists of America uh, conference. But, you know, I've been in different situations in my life where, you know, I, I would say that I would have started off as a moderate. And then mm. as I became less willing to compromise on human decency, I've mm. become a bit more farther left with mm. where that is. I think for me, a lot of where my politics come out of is out of identity and also just the work that I kind of put myself into. I've had a background in both the arts and nonprofit world for like the past three years. And that's really shaped the way that I would like to communicate and work with people. So, you know, let's just say that for now. So tell us about that journey, sort of, you know, coming from sort of a more, as you described, moderate stance Mm -hmm. now to, to further left. I mean, I always tell everybody like my political evolution started when I was really kind of forced into politics. I come from an immigrant family, Uh, being South Asian, being Bengali. uh, We we came over here and there's a stereotype that most immigrants are Democrats as soon as they come over here. Um, But the thing is, is that that community is not monolithic. There's so many things that go about there. Um, Maybe they're Democratic because of immigration or maybe, you know, over other rules. But really, I mean, that's the that was the primary reason I just knew from the get go that that's what we were. Mm. But it was the the 2016 election. I'm sure everyone can remember where they were whenever that was happening. Sure. And, uh, you know, nobody thought that Donald Trump was actually going to win. 
and then that happened, mm-hmm. you know, and it was terrifying. Um, I'm also undocumented. I actually am a DACA recipient. I didn't find out about that until I was actually 14. Uh, I grew up doing a lot of arts, dance, theater, and whatnot, and I was supposed to go perform with uh, a group from my school at Carnegie Hall. Mm. And I had taken $100 of my own money. I had put it down on a deposit uh, because that's what we needed for school, and I told my parents about it, and I could see my mom's face immediately go dark. Mm-hmm. And they had put off this conversation for a long time, but she told me that, you know, son, you're actually undocumented. Um, you don't have that sort of paperwork. The reason why we've never been back to Bangladesh or have traveled on a plane with you is because we're afraid of you getting deported. Mm. Um, here's the the kicker. I'm the only person in my family who is undocumented. My mm. mom and dad actually came to America on student visas, and so did my sister. My sister, who's eight years older than I am, is actually a U.S. citizen. Mm. And so, you know, being the youngest and also being a DACA recipient, it's like an inverted pyramid <laughs> as mm. to, like, how that kind of works. And so a lot of things happened in which I was disproportionately affected as a college student as well. It was interfering in me applying for school. I had lost my Oklahoma's promise. I'd lost all of those things. And mm-hmm. I was working um, to make sure that I'm paying for school out of pocket. Now, uh, I, I can vividly remember on September 5th when Jeff Sessions takes the stage and says that we're going to be taking away the program and renewals. And I I didn't know what to do. You know, I I was I became severely depressed. I wasn't leaving my dorm room or anything like that. Um, and you know, I was talking with therapists, but even that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And I was invited to speak on campus to talk about you know my story because as a South Asian American, the focus on immigration, especially right now, is not on us. It's very much so on the Latinx community uh, because they've been painted as a, as a villainous image. Um, when in reality, DACA recipients are from all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I'd spoken there, and then all of a sudden, my name was getting spent all over the place. Um, you know, CARE, Council of American Islamic Relations, and Dream Action Oklahoma had done a press conference and used me as their kind of their, their joint figure. And then from there, uh, we ended up organizing a 50-person bus trip to D.C., and we spent from December to February getting arrested, protesting, doing civil disobedience to try and get the House Republicans to put immigration into the budget bill. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say the most powerful moment of my entire life was being part of 1,000 brown and black people Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Capitol and shutting down the government, people who can't even vote. Now, I'm not saying government shutdowns are good, but, you know, we had to do what we have to do in order to protect ourselves and our community. And even when we didn't see that come to fruition or success, I decided the only way that we can make this change, not the only way, but the best way for me to make that change is by getting on a campaign. And, you know, traditionally, the people that are best for immigration are Democrats. And historically, that hasn't always been the case, but at least in the context of right now, that has been. So I was interning every single day on Drew and Kendra Horn's campaign. And the month before the primary, Kendra had hired me as a field organizer. I was 18 at the time. So they took a big risk on what they were doing. But um, I decided, you know, this is the only way I felt for me, if I was there, I could hold the people elected accountable because I was there. Like my story is up front all the time. And, you know, by by a miracle, she came out with 50.7. And December 1st, I finished with her. And I had learned enough about me. And December 2nd, I had started my own consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Norman's mayor, Bria Clark, was one of my clients. Uh, 
uh, deputy campaign manager for James Cooper, the first uh, LGBTQ elected official in Oklahoma City, also uh, a person of color outside of the historical black district, and Amanda Sandoval out in Bethany in a very, very conservative part, but we elected a, the youngest person, a woman of color, a very left individual. And it was with seeing them that I started to move farther and farther towards progressivism. I was always a progressive, but I never really knew how to vocalize it because being in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. you're surrounded by people who are either one, too afraid to talk about it, or if they do talk about it, they're kind of ostracized and seen as a little different. Mm -hmm. But I knew that if I didn't talk about it, then how are we ever going to normalize those conversations? And then additionally, finding how I ended up in progressive organizing specifically was the fact that even within the Democratic Party, we have people who are willing to meet in the middle on particular issues. And that's not always the best thing. Just because you are able to meet in the middle and compromise on something, that means that somebody else was left out of that conversation. The people who could have been affected by those big ideas are automatically left out of that conversation. Um, And essentially, I couldn't handle that anymore. Um, I went to the College of Democrats of America National Convention, and I saw that in in a youth organization where we should be having diverse perspectives, we should be having people who represent all aspects of the country, it was a primarily white organization, Mm -hmm. a primarily, you know, moderate to conservative almost organization. And that's not a place that... I wanted to be in. And so from there, I decided that, you know, it's it's really time for me to be who I really am. And, you know, I think every day we're still discovering what our political identities really look like, right? Like, for example, for me, like, uh, I've always been a hard advocate uh, for gun control, right? But, you know, if we're going to be talking about, like, leftism or whatnot, it's all about empowering working class individuals. So if you take away guns from the working class, what do we do in government? Like in a situation like our government mm. is doing things to affect its citizens in a negative way. So I, that's just one example of how we're constantly having to try and figure out what we want to do with our political identity. And I would say that's how I came into being who I am today. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I wonder if you could talk about, because this timeline of this, pro- it, it happened pretty quickly, right? Mm. Like post-election um, of the current president. And then in the 2017, sort of, so this pretty quick trickle effect of your, you know, sort of radicalization of moving left. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk about particularly that experience here in the state of Oklahoma, a very mm-hmm. red, conservative state, um, obviously being in Norman's a little less so, but I mean, still you're in the state of Oklahoma, right? So I wonder if you could talk about, um, you know, what that is and then being outward and open about your political leanings or your political ideology and, you know, saying socialist out loud, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly as a brown person mm-hmm. is, a, you know, a, a revolutionary stance in a state like Oklahoma, but I think in the United States in general. Fundamentally, I'd like to establish that, you know, progressive values do work here. Like, the only reason as to why it has been popularized is because we never talk about it in the first place. And the people of Oklahoma, agriculture, labor, teachers, healthcare, those workers are the people who would be primarily affected by these policies of progressivism. I identify as a person of faith. I'm a Muslim American. And I would say I grew up a pretty religious kid, a very religious kid. And a lot of people think that being left and being religious are Mm -hmm. mutually exclusive things, when in fact they really aren't. Mm -hmm. I actually am a person who identifies with the religious left. You know, uh, if I 
had to discover a particular element of socialism. Right now, I'm actually studying Islamic socialism right now. Um, back in the seven and eight hundreds, they were experimenting with universal basic income and mm-hmm. during all of those things. And these are, you know, policies and ideas that have existed for a long period of time. We just haven't talked about it in such a long time. For myself, coming into that, I've been recently been trying to marry those two particular things. I'm actually finding the more religious I'm ending up, the more left I'm going. Yeah. And I think particularly it's because for me, it doesn't really matter what the party is at the end of the day. You know, I am the president of College Democrats of Oklahoma, but as undocumented as I am, I'm not even a registered Democrat. Mm. For me, it is about uplifting the quality of life for people. At the end of the day, we are just trying to make sure that everyone can get by. Mm. And that means that we can't compromise on things like health care. We can't compromise on things like food security. We can't compromise on things like immigration. Like, mm. you know, these are all things that are fundamentally connected to each other. I started off particularly in immigration advocacy, but that led me into things like criminal justice reform, which led me into economics, which led me into pretty much everything else. Mm. All of these issues are fundamentally connected to one another. So in order to care about one, you have to kind of care about all of them. Mm. You can specialize in some of them, Mm -hmm. definitely. And that's where we need voices from those communities at the table, right? And I have the benefit of not looking like I'm, you know, 12 years old. <laughs> and for that, a lot of people have kind of trusted me because of that. And, mm. um, you know, I worked at I worked at the state government. Um, I was a legislative assistant for representatives Marilyn Bell and Chelsea Branham. And I was the youngest state employee in that building at the time. And that was an incredibly different experience as to seeing how our government, how our legislators are actually making laws. Now, I I will say I incredibly value the experience, but also I felt incredibly restricted being there because I to, I'm so used to being an activist or an advocate or, uh, you know, a campaigner. But once you're behind the desk, it's a completely different scenario because you can only watch what's happening by and you can only trust the person that you're working with to make the right decision. It's definitely interesting Mm. because, you know, walking into that building every day is a great irony knowing that, you know, as an undocumented individual working for the state government. Mm. And it's also just it's just interesting having to navigate those identities all the time. Mm. You know, touching on these really sort of having a a progressive outlook on life. Right. And and, and thinking about and I mean, and I think you touched on this, that it doesn't even necessarily have to be left or right on certain issues, but that certain things shouldn't be partisan issues, mm-hmm. right? That, cer- that certain things should just be human rights, right? Mm-hmm. We should have access to health care. Everyone should have access to nourishing food, right? You shouldn't live under threat of police violence in your everyday life, right? Like these should just be common things that we can all agree on, right? And as you said, shouldn't it be things that we need to meet in the middle on, mm-hmm. right? But that they are just basic human rights that the richest country in the world needs to be meeting for all of their citizens, right? So I wonder if you could talk a bit about sort of, because all of this, you know, poverty, the rates of poverty here in the United States and uh, the rates of incarceration are unbecoming of a country that purports to be the land of liberty and freedom, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So I wonder if you could talk about sort of politics in getting to the promised land or getting to freedom or getting to liberation. Because as you said, being in that arena or being in that sort of institution that is, uh, whether state government or, or local or federal, can be restricting, particularly for people coming from advocacy or activism. It's sort of how you juggle that, the the root of you being right, an advocate or an activist um, and having at times to play a, an oppressive game. Mm-hmm. 
I think to start with that, we have to talk about, number one, we're kind of in the most unprecedented election period in history. Like, of course, we've had, like, you know, worse things in the past because we have not lived those experiences. But to us right now, this feels like the most unprecedented, something that is not normal whatsoever. Mm. But that's both in a positive and a negative sense. Populism is on the rage right now. And that's something that you see in both people who support people like Donald Trump. And you see that in people who support people like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, actually, whenever whenever presidential candidates were first started coming out in the first place, I was initially a, a Warren supporter because, you know, I was like, oh, the party would be behind her and everybody can get behind her. Mm-hmm. But, you know, recently I've just had a lot of problems like with the with the party as an institution, like the party in itself is also a very corporatized institution. There has been a lot of corruption. Historically, there's been a lot of corruption. If you look at just even taking a look at our primary system, you're not competing for votes. You're competing for delegates. Yep. And delegates are the ones who are making decisions. And once you get to and, – and these are being run with public funds mm-hmm. in public elections for a private convention at the end of the day. Mm. And we never think about the fact of how – big of a consequence that actually results on American politics. You know, people say that it's it's not actually the general populace deciding the president. That's like a handful of people. I mean, it's true. It, it really is true. Yeah. I think right now we have so many upset people, but those upset people are filled with hope. You know, they're not jaded. People like myself who are brought into the political process and in such a short amount of time have been able to move through just the political career, right? Um, For a lot of people, it takes 20, 30 years. And I know as young people, we very much so talk about how we need to be given more opportunities and everything. And that's still true. But right now, we have so many leaders who are young people and it's only expanding. It's only going to get better from here. Mm. I personally do see that we are, I mean, we are in a period of experiencing radical change Mm. because, you know, with Trump, we're going all the way to the right and I'm seeing the pendulum swing all the way to the other side. And then I think actually the problem is going to be between moderate Democrats and Mm. everybody else. That's the circumstance that we're going to be running into. And it's fascinating, right? Because, I mean, you look at the current candidates in the Democratic Party. I mean, you have... Bernie Sanders, who I, I wouldn't categorize as all the way left, mm-hmm. um, but is someone who, at least compared to a Mike Bloomberg, right, or an Amy Klobuchar, is quite a bit different, right? That at, at times it looks like very different parties that are on the same debate stage and things. I mean, just this idea of, of moderation is just so deeply rooted in whiteness and this idea mm-hmm. that everything has to be a compromise or that, you know, that certain things need to come into the middle. And what happens so often is that that stance that we have to be in the middle um, allows room for oppression and for injustice, mm-hmm. right? And that uh, particularly on the, the most crucial issues, political issues, socio-political issues of today, that idea of being in the middle of those issues, right? Like who's compromised when we're compromising on certain issues? Mm-hmm. And it's always going to be the people who are oppressed yeah. by these various systems. So, I mean, there is such a, I think, a deep divide, and it's interesting to see, like, where the party is going to go. 
yeah from here i think and and you brought it up you had mentioned both bernie and bloomberg right mm -hmm. who actually neither are democrats yeah <laughs> very true neither of them are democrats they're both you know i mean they're both technically rich uh mm -hmm. and you know both jewish men from new york yep. who different um, levels of, of wealth right different <laughs> levels you know obviously one's the sixth richest in america yeah. and the other one sold a really good book but neither of them are, are democrats frankly mm -hmm. and you know it's just so interesting to see how you can register <laughs> just as one. i mean but that's the thing though right i mean you know, one of my great role models is actually Bernie's campaign manager, Faye Shakir. He is, uh, you know, he's a South Asian Muslim American who's running a populistic socialist campaign for, you know, a, a socialist candidate. But he used to work for Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, and I resonate a lot with that because, you know, I feel like I, I really started off with a lot of establishment folks before I started moving over. But I think fundamentally that is where we're getting it right this time around as opposed to when we did in 2016 because it's we understand the game now mm -hmm. as to how, you know, establishment figures like to play. And also at the same time, I would say something that we have kind of missed from last election is that there was there's a lot more discipline going forward with this one that, you know, a lot of establishment figures are proponents of all the time. It's like, oh, well, we've got it now, mm -hmm. you know, so... And then the thing with, especially like with Bloomberg, I'm like, I see so many, actually, so many of my friends are working for him now. Mm -hmm. and, and it's because of a paycheck and they need it. Yeah. You know, he offers like six to like $6,000 a month plus healthcare, like all of the things that in a dream situation, in a dream campaign world, we want all of those things. Yeah. And essentially, you know, he they're they're helping all these down ballot folks, but at the cost of what, mm -hmm. right? You know, I got an offer for their campaign. It was around five figures. And I did not know what to do with myself. I was like, I could get myself out of generational poverty yeah. or I can get myself or I could stay within my ethics and morals and not feel like I sold my soul. And, and the fact that that has to be a decision. And the fact that that has to be a decision <laughs> yeah. is problematic. I mean, obviously, I turned them down. Yeah. But it should not be it should not be a choice for some people we there needs to be like a marriage between the both yeah where people can provide for themselves and and get their needs met um and be able to survive and not only survive right can we get past a point where it's just yeah. a point of survival but also be able to thrive and live a little without having to you know sacrifice their morals or the ethics that is fascinating and i mean is the epitome of our capitalist society right mm -hmm. that everything runs on money and right. profit and i mean i'll say this though you know with him and warren and you know at the time julian castro entering the race they did push campaigns as an institution to the left Sorry. you know for the first time ever offering health care on campaigns for the first time ever offering living wage first time offering unionization of campaigns right because democrats are so big on unions but they never have gone far enough to unionize the work that they do. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, even there you're seeing a radical shift. Even if people don't win, you have to put in the work because naturally the environment and the culture will change. For me, the longest time has, it has always been about, we need to beat the president and we need to find out whatever way we can do that. But now I realize it's more than just that. 
it is not just even about a movement. It is about having a cultural change. Mm. It is about leaving a tangible impact that is going to benefit people in the long term. You know, what do I want my kids and my grandchildren to have? What did I stand for mm. at the time? So that's what the question I always ask myself with every decision that I make, mm. whether or not I'd be proud of that or not. How do we get to a place in campaigns, and you can talk about this on, at whatever level you want, what is it that will mobilize voters? And, I, you know, I think, you know, the numbers are coming out that records are broken um, in New Hampshire as far as voter turnout goes, right? So what is it that needs to happen, particularly on the Democratic side, to mobilize voters to get out to vote, particularly to get out to vote for the right candidate? Because I think it is crucial to beat, you know, this president, right? But I also fundamentally believe that while there are levels to evil and there are levels to oppression. Oppression is all oppression, right? right? And if we're not going to have a person in the office who's going to fight for us, right, it's going to be more of the same. Because we've had Democratic people in office, right, who haven't done a thing for black or brown people, oh, for absolutely. poor people, right? Yeah. So I, I absolutely think that there are levels to the candidates while, you know, the, the top thing should be let's beat President Trump. But I think a key, particularly for Senator Sanders, is to mobilize voters. So what is it that's going to get out, particularly young voters, mm-hmm. um, a voting bloc that has historically struggled to you know, get out to vote? What is it that will mobilize them? And what do they want to hear in your eyes from candidates? And you can talk federally, obviously, that's where we are right now, but also you know, mm-hmm. here on the local or state level. What is, what's kind of upsetting is that you know, people have to basically see suffering right in front of them in order yeah. to get it out. You know, I mean, in reality, that's how I got involved. But also, like, people, you know, Donald Trump was just so bad. He's just so bad that yeah. pe- that it's, that people are having to pay attention. Mm-hmm. The fact that they, they have to pay attention mm-hmm. is what's getting them out. We're going to have record historical turnout this year. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even in the state, you will see people who will mark D at the top and then R the rest of the way through because that's just how they work. Yeah. But it is going to take what hasn't it? Like that's the bigger question. Like what yeah. what what else do you have to see in order? Um, like do you need a constant bombardment mm-hmm. of problems? Do you you know, uh, like we have kids in cages, yeah. you know, and back when like you know, a year or two years ago when two years ago, right, when that started happening, it became a huge thing that consumed the media cycle. It's it really is. It's whether or not you can catch the media cycle. Once you've got there and you're you're fast tracked to becoming the top issue. Mm. And of course, like the election is the number one issue. It's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. You know, early on the media was definitely a big, you know, they were, they were trying to disturb Senator Sanders by not even hosting. And but also at the same time you're trying to figure out how you're gonna give attention to every single other candidate. And then, you know, people of color candidates were not even getting any attention at all. And, yeah. You know, it's it's whether or not you can if something bad or something positive can catch the media cycle is I would say is the is the big thing. In young people in particular, college students are the hardest people, <laughs> the hardest people 
to navigate. Mm. And they are the hardest people to try and get to commit because think, I mean, think about it. You're not worried about mm. what the entire world is doing. You're, you're worried about whether or not you can get through your next test, which mind you, you should, that should be the only thing you should be worried about. You know, when we talk about like education on the K through 12 level, kids should not be having to worry about where their next meal is coming from or stuff like that. They should be worrying about, you know, what they're learning in class so they can mm. be successful. But that problem is not just unique to those in K through 12. That's a problem that everyone has, especially college students. I mean, food security amongst college students, we never, we barely talk about that, yeah. right? But we have to have the issues right in front of us. If we don't have the issue right in front of us, if the issues are not visible, if the stories are not visible, then people are going to remain jaded and apathetic. Mm. You know, it's hard to hate something when it's right in front of you. Mm. And it's hard not to care when the issue has met you at your door, mm. which is why it's important to go door knocking, which is why it's important to send all of these bits and pieces of political communication. But the most honest thing that you can do is person to person contact and letting them know your story as well as trying to hear their story. We mm. all have something in common. That's a fundamental part about being human. And if you can expose that even further, that's how we'll get a vote. So let's talk a bit about Immigration, which is obviously a hot button issue mm -hmm. today because of the president and on a national level, sort of the rhetoric around it and the demonization of immigrants and um, undocumented people in this country. But even here uh, in the city of Norman recently, the uh, Norman Inclusive Community Subcommittee um, gave a recommendation to Mayor Bria Clark and uh, the city council uh, for the city to take steps to be a sanctuary city. Mm. Um, and quickly you saw in the Norman transcript, the paper here in Norman, citizens writing letters to the editor, mm. you know, about how um, if we became a sanctuary city or a hub for undocumented people, um, that crime rates would spike up and... You know, think about the kids and the children and education and resources will be given to them, right? So we, we see very clearly the ways that sort of the rhetoric on a national level um, has trickled down to the local level. And, you know, this fear of the immigrant, particularly the brown um, or black immigrant, has surfaced really in an ugly way across this country. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about what that's rooted in and why that fear is there of the immigrant or of undocumented people? I mean, I th to me, the answer is very simple. It's a lack of understanding. Yeah. There's no knowledge on the issue. I remember um, I was at the city council candidate forum, and each of the candidates were asked, how do you feel about the sanctuary city policy? And nobody knew what it was. Huh. Like no one understood, you know, they said that I don't have enough knowledge. Even the incumbents who were on that diocese had no idea what they were talking about. Mm. But really, I mean, that's where the fear, you know, these letters to the editors and stuff like that, it's, it's rooted in fear. Mm. They don't have an understanding of what it means to communicate with brown and black people. They have never been exposed to those communities in the first place. Like Norman is considered, you know, this progressive beacon on the hill <laughs> by some standard. Um, and anytime, you know, the city passes something, the state wants to fight back against it and yeah. preempt it. I mean, look, I mean, even at the state level, we have a piece of legislation that, you you know, because we're trying to do sanctuary policies here, they said, oh, no, we want to force every county to comply with ICE. There's only two counties that uh, doesn't necessarily do that. Oklahoma County, now they got some questionable stuff going on, but Very Cleveland much. County doesn't. And so, you know, the state wants to preempt Norman when it comes to that. A lot of these letters to the editors and stuff like that are not even just conservatives, but, you know, it's from an industry perspective from people as well. 
I think what we really need to do is that there needs to be some form of education campaign as to what the benefits of having immigrants in your city really looks like. Mm-hmm. We have definitely seen in a lot of places, like for example, like in Georgia, where a lot of refugees have been resettled, or in Minnesota in the same instance, where their economies, it's always an economic argument for these people. It has to be, if you want to meet conservatives somewhere, it has to be an economic argument. But economy, culture, and art is completely changed. The tourism is like out of this world the Mm -hmm. second that you introduce immigrant communities to your state or to your city. But yeah, like I said, like in Oklahoma, you have to talk economics with everybody here as to like what is a fiscal impact. And so you need to have both the pathos and the logos argument for both of these things. Ethics can be thrown out the window because this is politics apparently. But especially in, in these communities, it's all about exposure and you you need to have uh, an, an education campaign in the first place of how that goes. And then also an overhaul of just how we teach education based around immigrants in the first place. I mean, most people, when they hear about immigration in the context of this country, is primarily focused on like Anglo-Saxon or European. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the second that we talk about anything other than that, I mean, the first introduction to that is the Chinese Exclusion Act, yep. you know, that we talk about whenever, you know, before the gold rush and everything like that. And whenever we were be- building uh, the railway system. And obviously the, the, the hugest form of immigration that we talk about is slavery whenever it was introduced into this country. And um, what I am particularly liking right now is especially in arts, culture, and media, they are highlighting black stories much more, should definitely be much more, but much more than we've ever done before. Why? Because it is an economic driver right now. They're capturing new audiences. A lot of these media companies are realizing they're not making as much money before, so they have to explore options they don't have. Um, You know, I was watching the the Oscars and the director of Parasite said something that was uh, very good in which, like, if you just read the subtitles you're going to be introduced to a whole world of things that you didn't know before. Mm. Because let's be honest, most of the stuff in American media is just reboots anyway. Can progressives win in Oklahoma? Yes. Statewide? Period, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're running a progressive right now whose whole focus is agriculture, labor, and health care. The three biggest drivers right now. I mean, education also, also, but... Mm. The biggest drivers of this congressional district is those things. Mm-hmm. We have farmers, we have we have service workers and industry workers, and we have people. And this is such a rural area, with the exceptions of Norman and, and Ada and Arbor, even even then Lawton, because you have all these hospitals shutting down. You know, healthcare is the number one thing in the ballot in Oklahoma. That's the biggest thing, and those are progressive values. Right. State sponsored insurance that is progressive in a way. Um, Would you encourage young people to get involved in political organizing? And also, what should the relationship between particularly activists Mm. or community organizers be to the political arena? I do encourage each and every person, regardless of whether them being young or old or, you know, regardless of ability to participate in whatever capacity that they can. It's not realistic to say everyone needs to devote this to their time 100%. We all have lives. We all have day-to-day things. And also, it's very important that you don't dedicate 100% of your time to this because you will get burnt out. It will happen. I mean, you know, for me, the day after I had won all three of those elections, 
I'm not going to lie, I really didn't feel anything because mm-hmm. I was so burnt out. Mm-hmm. And it took me months before I could actually want to get back and doing campaigns. I didn't want to even do this anymore for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was successful at it. I didn't want to do it. There has to be a healthy relationship between yourself and in organizing. There is something that each and every person cares about, right? We're all advocates. And in the context of activists coming into the political sphere, those things are connected to each other. I would say the best part about being an activist is that you're nonpartisan. You can attack anybody you want and you can (laughs) talk to anybody you want. You can support anybody you want. And you don't ever have to compromise your own personal morals. Mm. And I would say in politics, historically, you have always had to compromise your morals. I will say right now, when I said that this is an unprecedented time in history, I'll say for the first time in a long time, people are able to truly be themselves when they're running, right? Mm. You know, in in 2018, you saw a historical amount of women running for office, and we have an unprecedented amount of them right now, but it should be even more. Mm. You know, I'm wondering what it's going to look like for more people of color and non-binary people to be elected into office. Mm. You know, people who have visible tattoos or colored hair, you know, very simple things like that. We have two very visibly Muslim women elected to office right now. We have people from all over being elected. This is that time. If you want to run for office, this is that time. Believe me, there's plenty of consultants and staff to go around, although in this state, I will say we need even more. But this is that time, and it's only going to get better from here. I am not a negative person. I'm, I'm very much so an, an ideological, optimistic individual. And so in order to keep that going, people have to be involved. And I think that's only going to get better from here. Yeah. 100%. What is your radical dream? I was in New York earlier this year. I spent two and a half weeks with my sister. And pretty much like we lived there as opposed to just, you know, just doing a vacation. And, you know, I've seen brown and black people walking everywhere. And I had complete anonymity. To me, that was both a good and a bad thing. The reason why I love this state so much is because, for me at least, I can walk into any room and I can say hello to somebody I know. Or even if I don't know them, we're going to become friends. Being in, you know, New York, that was not the case. You know, people have always got something to do. But at the same time, my visibility of being a brown person wasn't an offense to somebody. Mm. I was able to coexist just simply. I would say in terms of the context of my home, because to me, like, this is my home, right? For me, it is is seeing a lot of my friends being able to enjoy their lives in whatever capacity that may be course primarily most of the folks I'm around are students so it's always debt it's always <laughs> where their next meal is going to be coming from or focusing on mental health seeing them in their healthiest state we we're always going to have conflict and struggle and that's not necessarily a bad thing it helps us grow it helps us change but to see them and hopefully me a part of them have some level of success and happiness at the end of the day it's all just about being content Whether you're ambitious or not, it is about whether or not you are finding some level of content and peace for yourself. Mm -hmm. For me, that radical dream is constantly being able to strive for that and to achieve at least some level of it. You know, having a floor that like we're all good at some point. We're going to keep going, but at least there's a floor Mm -hmm. 
for us to have. Right now, it doesn't feel like that. We're not there. But I want that more than anything. Well, thank you so much, Taz. Of course. Thank you for having me on the show. For joining us today. I really appreciate it. It was really great. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.